0: The Boston Celtics select Jason Tatum from Duke University.
2: Brown on
1: the break for the Celtics. Goes around the world. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm of Mass Live. I'm joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. Nicole, how are you doing?
2: Pretty good, Tom. How are you?
1: I'm good. I got a haircut from my wife. First one to quarantine. Like it's it's kind of amazing what it does for you. I got new life. Like I feel lighter. I feel happier. I'm just uh, I don't feel so shaggy. You know, like your whole life starts to feel shaggy, and I don't feel shaggy anymore.
2: I need a haircut so badly.
1: (laughs) And you don't even really have a solution for it. Like you can't.
2: I could cut my own hair.
1: Can you do that? Is that like, I I don't.
2: Theoretically could cut my own hair. I don't know if I actually will do that, but I've been watching a few YouTube videos. I was
1: just going to say, yeah, this is is a time to learn new things such as uh, watching YouTube videos and cutting your own hair.
2: Because if I mess it up, nobody will see it. Exactly. So.
1: But you better hope. See, the thing that had me concerned was that like the NBA was going to like kind of come back unexpectedly and then I would be stuck like, "Oh, I got to get into my barber and everybody's going to be trying to get a haircut at the same time." So anyway, that's been Hair Chronicles with Tom and Nicole. We've got a pretty cool episode for you guys today. We're really excited about. We've got Kyle Newbeck, one of if not the best Sixers beat writer. He's he's really really good. You guys should all check him out. Real quick before we talk to Kyle, if you guys feel like it, leave us a review. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple. We're trying to get our, uh, trying to get our numbers up here. So if you, uh, if you guys want to do us a favor, we would really appreciate it. But thank you guys all for listening. We will be right back with Kyle Newbeck. Guys, looking to last longer and go a few extra rounds? Get to BlueChew.com. BlueChew.com has the first-ever chewable that brings your performance in the bedroom to another level. They've got the same active ingredients that are in Viagra and Cialis, so you know they work. And since they're chewable, they work faster. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. Plus, you don't need to go to a doctor's office or spend time waiting on the pharmacy line. Blue Chew's online physician is free of cost. And once approved, your order ships straight to your door in discreet packaging. Here's a great deal for you guys. Visit bluechew.com and get your first order free when you use the promo code BLUEWIRE. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-CHEW.com, promo code BLUEWIRE. All right, guys. So Nicole and I are very pleased to welcome to Geno Time, Kyle Newbeck of the Philly Voice. Kyle, how you doing, man?
0: Hanging in just
1: like everybody
0: else, man. How are you guys doing today?
1: Surviving. Surviving. (laughs) Um, So Kyle, I mean, before we get too deep into, uh, we're going to be talking about the 2018 playoff series. Before we get too deep into that, I mean, just what has it been like from a Philly perspective during the coronavirus? I mean, how how have the Sixers been sort of operating during the crisis here?
0: Uh, They've mostly been radio silent, like maybe it's partially because I've been focusing on, as we're going to do today, like some look back stuff and more retro stuff. But uh, uh, the vibe I've gotten is that everybody's bunkering down and, you know, the guys, the players are trying to prep for if the season comes back as much as anything else. But besides that, they're shortening their work week. I know they've cut Fridays for a lot of the business PR Even like front office type people, they're trying to make sure people are taking care of themselves, like from a mental health perspective on top of the players being conditioned and all that. But, you know, around Philadelphia in general, I'm sure it's the same as it is most other places. No doubt.
1: I did think it was cool that Embiid was doing the thing with the arena workers. I felt like he kind of forced. For sure. I felt like he kind of forced management's hand a little bit. That he was just like, "All right, like here, I'm gonna pay for these people if you guys aren't." Is that kind of a, a vibe that you got from that?
0: It was a very awkward moment where you know. So for your audience, if they weren't aware, the the Sixers came out and they. So the Sixers owners own both the Sixers and the New Jersey Devils, and they came out with a, a plan that they were going to cut into people's salaries that were making above $50,000 a year across the board. And then there were certain, it was for at-will employees. And then certain members of the front office were asked to take voluntary cuts. And obviously there was a big backlash to that as there has been in other business spaces. And Joel Embiid comes out the next day and commits to paying those employees he started to establish uh, a relief fund wanted to donate to other causes and so the Sixers owners were forced to backtrack on all that and it was this very weird moment where it's like okay that's like a direct shot at what ownership did and that just feels like you know it was weird for a bit and then the owners came out and they donated to several prominent charities they provided I think like 10,000 laptops to kids in Philadelphia to uh to learn from home during all this. So I, I think things have been smoothed over a bit, but it was certainly a weird time for a few minutes there. There's been a lot of weird stories in Sixers world over the last four or five years. So that was not quite at the top, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's approaching <laughs> it, I suppose.
1: A topical one. That's actually a perfect lead-in. Nicole and I were talking, and it, it kind of felt like one of the things that really sort of sparked the rivalry. that That's always been kind of you know boiling beneath the surface, but one of the things that really sparked it was the Fultz pick. Is that, do you think that's fair to say that that was sort of the beginning of it, just like the Celtics, the Sixers, the, the fan bases, you know, despising each other, and then here are these two rookies. Everybody loves rookies, and it's it's almost a competition between those two, the way that the, the pick situation worked out?
0: For sure. I think it starts with, you know, the teams were finally both relevant again for the first time in a long time. There was just, like, decades-long period where one would be up. Mostly Boston would be up because the Sixers have had their struggles. <laughs> um, but uh, – now that they were on a collision course or both at the end of rebuilds and and getting back into playoff contention and then you add in the fact that they make this massive trade that you know Sixers fans at the time and a lot of people around the league were like man they won that I can't believe Boston would let them trade up into that number one spot because I think Markel was viewed at the time as you know he's like the no doubt slam dunk number one pick and as it turns out it goes sideways and so that that ends up that's like a whole nother layer on top of obviously what was already a a great historic rivalry that now has, you know, some additional stakes on top of that.
1: That didn't feel like a stupid trade at the time, obviously, like you were saying, like that was, he was the missing piece. It felt like in a lot of ways, because he was the guy who could score from three out of the pick and roll. He was the guy who could collapse the defense, who could, you know, do all these things that it felt like Simmons and Embiid really needed. And he was, capable of all them. it was just such a bizarre moment because he was like the perfect piece he fit in just you know like like a puzzle in there
0: yeah theoretical theoretically Fultz, yeah <laughs> theoretical faults is like the perfect guy it's that has the perfect set of skills that they needed and actually like when they traded for Jimmy Butler I think the motivation there even though he's a much different personality person than Markel Fultz is the same thing it's a guy who you know he's long he's athletic he can score at all three levels he can he can shoot, he can finish at the rim, he, he gets to the line, all that stuff. It's like they, they wanted the same things. It's just a matter of, all right, well, it looks like we're not getting it from Markel. So who, what's the avenue to us getting that sort of player? So yeah, they've been chasing that for a while, and they really still haven't found a uh, a guy for that role, which is why Ben Simmons' lack of a shot has been such an issue.
1: How far into the 2017-18 season – at what point did Sixers fans start to sort of accept that Markel was going to be, that he, that he wasn't theoretical Markel?
0: I I mean, I don't know if, I I, I think a lot of fans never really did. Hmm. When he came back, uh, this is one area I give Philly fans a lot of credit. I've never seen an athlete who produced so little for a, a team here get such like a, a warm embrace from the fan base that they, they made him feel like, know like we're behind you and just for like attempting shots let alone making them but there was a like every time i would write about markel or you know obviously the videos that everybody posts about him were a big deal every time i'm posting stuff it's like this isn't a story he's hurt let him get better blah 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 and so there was like that obviously you don't want to read too much into who the loud and vocal part of the fan base is because sometimes that's not representative But it was a very weird mix of people. Some people never really gave up on Markell and believed like this really is a a physical thing only. Then there were the people that right away were like, this is the yips, he's a bust, blah, blah, blah. Like, So there are a lot of competing factions within the fan base. And I think it probably started to set in in year two. And it was the moment when he got benched for TJ McConnell and then disappeared. And then that's when he... He visited like 10 different specialists and he got the thoracic outlet syndrome diagnosis. It wasn't really until then that I think people accepted like this is really off the rails. Because even the summer before he's with Drew Hanlon, who's saying he's going to turn him into, you know, shiny number one pick that everybody thought he could be. And then he comes out and he's still not shooting threes. And everyone's like, okay, something's really up here. For sure. Yeah,
2: I like had a, an interaction with that because I had asked Joel a question about Tatum and I just tweeted the quote, not thinking anything of it. Yeah. And it was a very positive quote. It was like, Jason's so special. He's going to be great for years, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, a contingent of 76ers fans just like start flooding my mentions of like, oh my God, I is this imagine. a failed shot at Markel? <laughs> like quote tweeting it and like, what is Joel trying to say? And it's like, no, 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 no. Like they're friends. Like this has nothing yeah. to do with the trade or anything, like he would have said this if Tatum was picked 12th or 5th, like it has nothing to do yeah. with that, but everybody was like trying to dissect it and it was such a basic, just like, Jason's great. Like it was such a basic quote, but people were going insane.
0: And I think Markel and Jason actually have a pretty good relationship partially yeah. because they're in the same draft class, but it, it's funny that like there's been this animosity and all this scrutiny on the pick, but the two guys that were really the most important parts of the trade seemed to have a lot of affection for one another personally
1: for sure during that season how were like how was like the sixers fan base the sixers like online world? how were they reacting to like because it was pretty clear early on that Tatum was going to be you right. know, really good like he was he was doing a lot of stuff like how were they reacting to that early on?
0: Well, I, I think some people wanted to dismiss it like, oh, he's on a hot streak. And, you know, I, I will admit, I think my eval on Tatum coming into the league is like, oh, he he settles for bad shots. He's like sort of an oh, archetype yeah. of player that I don't particularly like. And then you bring him to the NBA and he's like taking threes rather than long twos and making them in a high clip. And he's defending well, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, holy shit this guy is like way better than i thought he was yeah so was like the split of people who were like man the sixers screwed up and they drafted the wrong guy blah 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 and then there are people who wanted to you know bury their heads in the sand a little bit and believe like hey if markel or when markel gets right he's still the right guy to to help the sixers more than tatum was
1: i definitely threw around the rudy gay comparison before that draft like a lot with that's. What, I mean, that's like, the
0: type of guy I saw when I played. Yeah. And maybe it's just the structure and how he was instructed to play there. And so you give uh, Boston's development staff and, and Stevens and, and Tatum himself credit for making the adjustment. But yeah, but yeah, I I missed big time on that one. I mean, I think but you I give. I
1: think you
2: guys are alone in that. Like, yeah. I think in retrospect, it's so obvious the difference yeah. between the two. But at the time, I don't think anybody would have thought twice about picking Markel
1: mm-hmm. first um, for sure. I mean, he was like, he really looked like right handed James Harden. Like, it was like, there was so much of that, like, similar, like, getting to wherever he wants to go.
0: As recently as Summer League, that first year, Markell was hitting step back jumpers and threes and all this stuff. And it's like, he's the guy that everybody expected him to be. So nobody's even thinking about it. And then we show up to training camp in, I guess, late September, early October, and he's at the free throw line. It's like, what the hell happened here? Like, what's going on? And at first, you don't even realize something's wrong. It's like, oh, he's just he's mess. He's experimenting with some stuff, and that's. Yeah. I think that's what Brett Brown said initially, and eventually that evolves into a whole different sort of deal.
1: From from a fan base perspective, um, it, yeah. it felt like that bubbled throughout the season. That was something that, like you know, Celtics and Sixers fans online were arguing about on the court. Why do you think those teams? Because it felt like right away they didn't like each other. Like, Why do you think those teams didn't like each other right off the bat?
0: It's a good question. You know, I think some of it is like Joel is a guy who brings a lot of attention onto himself for better or for worse. And so I think that's the sort of player that other teams like to beat. Mm. It's like that feels good to beat someone like that. Especially like – and now it's funny they're teammates now, but like Al Horford is kind of the opposite sort of dude. Like even when you interview him, he's very much – Like, he gives you the professional quote, and that's it. He's not going to give you anything more than that. So I I think there's sort of a a contrast of styles there. And, you know, the the Sixers were all young, and, like, they think they're hot shit. And then they run in – like, Joel runs into Horford specifically, and you get humbled a little bit, and you don't want to believe that, you know, Horford is the problem or that this team is the problem. It's like, well, I can be better. And I think he said something to that effect in interviews like there were interviews he did I think probably after the series more like next season regular season games where he gets asked like hey is Al giving you problems and he's like no nobody gives me problems and he's like in denial a little bit and I think that that fuels it but like I think for the most part it's like they're tough physical teams that they're built around their defense specifically like obviously Brad Stevens's teams in Boston have historically been very good defensively and Ben and Joel like that's their calling card, so that makes for a very uh, a tough clash and I think that that lends itself to uh, a rivalry heating up quicker than others
1: I think the Celtics also kind of had this uh, combination of young guys who played a major role, but then yeah. there was also like Marcus Morris who's an instigator and there's Marcus Smart who I wouldn't call him an instigator but he's not certainly not like a back down type of guy oh he Um, he carries
0: himself like he's the best player on the court or at least the best defender
2: he shoved Joel Embiid that game last
1: season
2: (laughs) like blatantly shoved him off the court yeah
1: yeah So like, I think that contributed some to it as well, where it was just like, you know, it's a bunch of like competitive young dudes going at each other. And then like, it wasn't like the Celtics, aside from Horford, it wasn't like the Celtics veterans were necessarily going to be calming the situation down either. No, no,
0: no. So I think that was part of it. Yeah. And I think like, if you, if you trace it to that playoff series, you come in with Kyrie is out, obviously, and the Sixers come in, they're riding high. They, they pretty easily dispatched of like a vet miami team they look great at
1: that miami team
0: and they had been on a a, i don't remember how they might have won like 16 straight games in the regular season and they're they're like hot and everyone's like man this team not only might be boston but they might go to the finals like there was that kind of buzz for that team and then they run into like a fucking buzzsaw (laughs) those first two games where boston at home was just they were not prepared for that environment i could tell you that and then there's the confetti game and that adds to the it's like the ridiculous factor. I think that allowed some of the uh, the Celtics guys to have some jokes at the Sixers expense that they're celebrating before they even won the game. So, yeah, I think there's there's a million different factors. But I think the most important one is they're both good and they've been good the last few years. And that sort of helps us. It gives us something to talk about, which I personally very much appreciate. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, let's
1: let's get into that series. Just like the initial thoughts on it. Like you mentioned the buzz saw right away, not necessarily being prepared to go into Boston. Take us through that a little bit from their perspective, from like what you remember. Like did they so so you feel like they were unprepared for like the environment, or what did you feel like they were unprepared for?
0: I think it's several different things. I think number one, Stevens' teams have generally defended Ben better than anyone. Like they They have dared him to try to beat them, and they've done a really good job of – they wall off the paint, but they're also good at recovering the shooters on top of that. I think Marcus Morris gave him a lot of problems just on his own, let alone with the – the help from the other guys because you know he relishes those sort of assignments i think even when he's not necessarily the most qualified guy for him he he believes in his mind that he is and i I really thinks he's the lebron stopper
1: yeah yeah
0: so so ben goes from in that miami series he's putting up like you know 20 points a game and dishing out lots of assists and then there's the, what was, did he have like two points or, or no came points to, in the game? Game two, he right? had one point. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Which led so, to the
2: great photoshops of like him as Wilt Chamberlain and just holding yes. up like a one.
0: <laughs> I couldn't remember. I knew it was a very small number. It that way. <laughs> um, yeah, so they weren't prepared for that. I think that the, the home court in Boston was real. Like I tell people stories this all the time, but when I, I was up in the press section and I'm sitting next to Rich Hoffman from The Athletic, And I think it was in game two, the Sixers took a big first half lead and then Boston stormed back and came within like, I don't know if they tied it, but they were within like two or four points. And it got so loud in there that I tried to turn to talk to Rich and he is like maybe like a foot or two from my face and it's like nothing is coming out of our mouths. Like it was that loud. It was ear piercing loud. And I think that they were just a little shell-shocked from, you know, it was like the first time any of those guys were in the playoffs, like not just Joel and Ben, but Dario Sharrett and Robert Covington. So that's like four or five starters. J.J. Reddick's the only guy in the starting lineup with real experience. And, you know, on top of that, some of those guys had obvious weaknesses. Like they tried to force Covington off the line and dribble the whole series. They tried to ISO J.J. to great effect for a lot of that series. Like, Tatum and Brown are just attacking him relentlessly. So they had a lot of problems on top of like the inexperience factor that I think contributed to what happened in that series.
1: Well, and they also, like like you said, with, with Reddick. I mean, they, they went at him. They tried to ISO him constantly. They also tried to ISO Sarich and yes. Bellinelli, and they just, especially Bellinelli. It was funny. Oh, he was Six- a turnstile. It was so bad. <laughs> but the Sixers needed him so bad because they needed yes. that shooting. And like, so they had no real... Like i mean they didn't really have like another option they had to they had to have him in the game, and the Celtics were just like, thank you like we'll you know run him yeah. run him into the pick and roll and it was just you know try to get him into the switch and they would just kill him going back through that series, one thing that really stood out was how much i mean like it it feels obvious in retrospect because like defensively obviously horford was one of the best MP defenders and I mean honestly when he guarded um, Simmons, he was one of the best Simmons defenders as well for the Celtics, but like you go back and watch that series and you're reminded how important he was to them offensively too, because whenever, you know, Embiid was out of the game or, or whatever, like they, you know, it'd be like Saric or somebody like that guarding him. And he just, it's not a flashy ISO. Like it's not like a Jason Tatum blow by or Jalen Brown right. going up for big dunk, but it's like, yeah, I'm going to get you in the post, do my little turnaround from 15 feet. And it's like an automatic two points every time he tried to do that against, you know, some of those Sixers defenders, he was just so important to them.
0: It's just – it's so funny to me because now that he's – now that Horford's in Philadelphia, all the shots that I remembered him hitting where it's like, oh, he's got an above the break three uncontested in a big spot. Like that shot went in against the Sixers 95% of the time. He made maybe 20% of their (laughs) shots for the Sixers this year. And even some – like as you're saying, like some of his bread and butter, like 15-footers or like low post, mid post, like those little baby hooks and shots off the glass and stuff like that. Even that stuff has stopped going down. But like I, I can remember it. every time they play at Boston, it's like it gets the crunch time and it's like a two to four point game. And I'm just waiting for the Horford shot to go in no matter where it's uh coming from on the floor. Him and Aaron Baines, who for whatever reason it's like turns into Ray Allen when he's playing the six. <laughs> well, this year he was Ray Allen for
1: a long stretch, just period. Yeah, like seriously. For the, uh, that dude that dude can uh, that dude can play and it's it goes kind of under the radar a little bit. Like, when you go back and watch it, I mean, Embiid was, even even with Horford in the game, you know, if Horford got switched on to somebody else or whatever, like, he was still, I mean, he had plays that were just so dominant. Like, that dunk on Baines, I think it was oh game, God, game three. Dude, was I mean, insane. that's one of the most vicious posters I've ever seen. W- coming away from that series, like, what were you thinking about Embiid? Because obviously, he still was showing tons of flashes of, like, the superstar that he could be. But also, like, I felt like that was one of the first times that we got, like, a real glimpse of, some of his his real limitations as well.
0: Yeah, so I, I think first to the positive, I think in, I want to say it was game five, there was a stretch in the second yes. half where he was just like <laughs> unguardable, where they gave him the ball. And I don't even remember who was, it might've been some Horford, some Baines, but he just, it, it didn't, didn't matter. matter what he was like. And that was like a holy shit. <laughs> he might not be ready for this moment yet, but like think of what this guy might be in, two years three years five years assuming that he stays healthy but I I think to your point I think what you also saw is like yeah his his post moves are not necessarily refined and dealing with double teams is an issue for him because you know he turns it over whether he's passing the ball whether he's like over dribbling trying to power through somebody and I think something that's remained true For the last few years, much to the chagrin of Philadelphia fans, is like when he can't beat guys with strength, a lot of times that leaves him in a really tough position. And even though it seems like he should be able to bowl over Horford, I think Horford, the one thing that he's really good at is like his core strength and just not giving guys real estate. So that's been, whether it's him, whether it's Marcus Sol, those like big bodied, strong post defenders he's had trouble with. And, you know, he's got to work on, like the fundamentals and uh, we've seen him flash like I know in college the big thing was people saw him dream shake a few times yeah, yeah, and yeah. I was like man this dude's going to be a a one yeah. yeah but in terms of turning that into like a, a play-to-play night-to-night thing he hasn't been able to do that and so I think at the time it was okay this is he looks a little green around the gills but he's going to turn this into something eventually and unfortunately I don't think he's made as much progress as I think people hoped he would have at the time sure sure it did feel like in that series
1: one of the things that the Celtics were able to kind of expose with him was like like you said you know he he tends to if he can't overpower somebody he's more likely to run sort of like three point line to three point line and, and the other problem too is if he he can't overpower somebody his most efficient offense a lot of the time is is being in the post and that mm-hmm. that can be really inefficient if you aren't like super super elite at it and like the Celtics managed to make him not super elite at that if that makes sense
0: yeah. And I think the other problem is, and this is like a team construction thing that has, we'll be talking about it until the two break up, if they ever break <laughs> up. But but there's that ebb and flow where, okay, if Joel's in the post, then Ben Simmons is effectively Either you're sticking him in the dunker spot, or he's on the perimeter being not guarded by the other team. Being and so hours. a lot of the Joel on the three-point line, and he's admitted this himself, is like, I'm trying to help Ben because Ben needs to be able to use that space and you know drive and kick drive and score drive and get fouled whatever whatever he chooses to use it for but so they haven't they hadn't figured it out at the time and unfortunately they still haven't really figured out the right balance because you know Joel I think has changed his game to suit Ben but Ben really hasn't done the other way around and that's sort of I guess the the fundamental problem with those two as a, a partnership, despite the fact that obviously they've been very successful for a pair of young guys together.
1: So the rest of that team, you know, doesn't have like a, like a huge impact on, on on the Sixers like going forward. The way they've constructed teams since that 2018 series, because during the 2018 series, obviously there were, there were the holes with, like we were saying before, Bell and Ellie couldn't defend anybody, but they still needed the spacing. How have you seen them sort of react to those problems that they had during the 2018 series going forward?
0: Yeah, well, I think some of the problem with their team building generally has been that Whatever they, however they were humbled the year before, that's it's like an overcorrection, <laughs> and it, it's it's funny because actually the Philadelphia Eagles sort of did the same thing. They had no team speed last year, and everybody complained about it. And like all they did in this year's draft was, all right, we're drafting fast athletes, and we don't sure. really care so much about production. So I don't know if like the Philly franchises just have this <laughs> mind meld on this where they overcorrect, but but yeah, so they wanted to get, I think. I think the the major thing they wanted is self-creation because I think the problem they ran into, especially because Ben was so ineffective, was, you know, if, if they're putting the ball into JJ Reddick or Robert Covington or Dario Sharch's hands, they can only do so much with it. And they're not able to break us down on offense. And I think, Sixers fans saw, you know, like Tatum and Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier and all these guys like win these isolation matchups. It's Mm. like, well, why don't we have guys who can dribble? Like, what's the what's the issue here? So I think that's some of why they went and got Jimmy Butler. I think that's some of why they traded for Tobias Harris. And they're looking for guys that, you know, they can succeed with or without the ball in their hands. I think Jimmy probably is more on the ball dominant side, and so that's why he kind of clashed in terms of fitting with Ben Simmons. But I I think the trouble with Joel and Ben is like, they need people who can create with the ball in their hands, but don't necessarily need it all the time and are fine being like that third or fourth banana type player. And it's hard to find those guys. And a lot of times those are the guys that teams don't want to let go because they're in, in some ways, just as important as having that, that top end guy because it's, it's a skill threshold, but it's also like the mental makeup of someone to be like, hey, I'm okay accepting a role in the background to help the team win.
1: Yeah. yeah the, the mental makeup of a guy who can take guys off the dribble and can beat guys, but like doesn't always need to. Like that, it's not, it's not, it's a weird common. middle ground. Yeah, you I, want, I, like
0: a lot of these guys, a lot of high level guards specifically, have been the best player on their teams yeah. their entire life. And then they have to get to – so some of it is they have to be old enough to take their, take their licks at the NBA level and figure out, hey, I'm not going to win if I'm, like, option 1A at all times. And some of it is just having the skills to do it. So yeah. uh, it's, they haven't found the, the sweet spot yet. We'll see if they ever do.
1: All right. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to hear from Online And we will be right back with more uh, with Kyle Newbeck. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. BetOnline has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, Stock prices, and even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering solution. So now obviously it's 2020. Feels like in a lot of ways that that series played a you know, kind of a formative role for both teams, where like the Celtics obviously had huge performances from Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and that's kind of the building blocks of their team now. Have you seen sort of a similar sort of sort of a similar impact on the Sixers in other ways like on on Ben on Joel like have they kind of taken stuff from
0: that series I think honestly the obviously the more transformative series in terms of this team was last year against Toronto because mm. the, the way they lost that and with how deep they went and and on top of that the investments they made in terms of trades and you know they they go and get Jimmy Butler and trade away two of the guys from that team that played the Celtics, they trade for Tobias Harris and, you know, that put them all in. I think that was probably the more transformative series for those guys. Cause they, they lost in the most heartbreaking possible fashion. I, I think on the, like the, the broader Sixers side, I think it was more about like, okay, this gives us an idea of, What are we missing here, and how are we exploitable in the playoff series? And, you know, I don't think that they've necessarily addressed those things because what they've struggled to do is they need to find guys who are good enough offensively and defensively that they are in that sweet spot that they can't be picked on on either end. And unfortunately, a lot of the guys that are high enough level shooters to offset the Ben and Joel problem are not giving you the same on the other end. And I, I think, like, if they had been able to make a trade without Robert Covington to upgrade the team in that way, I think he would still be obviously a, a huge asset on this team. And they're, I guess they're looking for a mix of what they were missing in that series and honestly recapturing some of what they had. That, you know, Robert Covington has a tough series, but I think more often than not, on a, a, a more evenly structured, evenly balanced team, they would have had a desperate need for someone like that. They've tried to fix those holes and created some other holes as a result, I think.
1: Sure. This season, obviously, was, was kind of a, I mean, is, is it fair to say it was kind of a disaster given, like, the plans oh, yeah. they had going in? Yeah, okay. How have you seen sort of, like, what they learned last year and, like, what they tried to build and what they tried to bring in kind of blow up in their face this year?
0: Well, I, th- I think the guiding principle behind signing Al Horford, for example, <laughs> was we need him to go up against Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like that was their their guiding philosophy is like, okay, Kawhi's leaving Toronto and Milwaukee was the best regular season team last year and is most likely our biggest threat in terms of trying to win the East. And so Horford has been a guy that traditionally has had success guarding Giannis. And so they were like, okay, we can have Joel guard him for stretches. We can have Horford guard him. We can have Ben guard him. And that's like, no team is going to be able to offer a better plan for this one player who just so happens to be one of, one of, if not the current best player in the league. Well, unfortunately, they didn't think about the fact that Horford was going to, number one, exacerbate some of the existing problems they had with Ben and Joel fitting together. Number two, that Horford was going to age, and you know some of his skills have not translated as well. Like He shot poorly, which – that would hurt no matter how he looked otherwise. And then I think there's been – I've talked to you guys and other people in Boston that have said, you know, there's – Al normally has some down periods in the middle of the year and then ramps up toward the playoffs. Well, unfortunately, we don't know if we're going to get the playoffs this season now. And so most of what Sixers fans and, and media have seen is Al Horford in the middle of the season where athletically he's not always able to get there they had a West Coast road trip where they're going up against guys like Anthony Davis, who's just, you know, blowing by him, dunking over him. Even someone like Montrez Harrell, who's like an athletic active big man is giving him problems. And, and so it, it showed a lot of the issues with Horford if he has to be, I guess one of their centerpieces and they struggled to incorporate him in a defensive scheme that really is built around Joel's talents where he is just you know, he's got a huge wingspan. He's athletic. He's one of the best shot blockers in the league. And for all of Horford's gifts as a defender, you want him more, I don't want to say blitzing, but at least like hedging on guys right. and playing up and and doing things that they don't have Joel do, where he's dropping back and playing that drop coverage. And they've struggled to find a balance between, you know, not adjusting it because they don't want to screw with what Joel does but wanting to tweak it around Al so that Al can, you know, be the best player that he can be. So it's a long way of saying that the Horford signing has gone way left for them. <laughs> that was pretty predictable,
1: right? Like, wasn't yeah. it like, cause it was like, okay, yes. Like you've got the guy who can maybe guard, who can guard Giannis, you know, as well as, you know, anybody this side of Chami Ojale, but, but like, wasn't it pretty predictable that like, okay, you face the Raptors, for example, who are not the Bucks and who do not employ Giannis Antetokounmpo, but they like at that point, what do you do with this roster that you pretty much constructed right. to beat Milwaukee? I,
0: I guess the philosophy was that, Horford has been adaptable throughout his career and you know I don't think it worked necessarily well for Boston in the playoffs in years past but I know they did have some success with some Baines Horford pairings in the front court and so you look at that and you say like okay well Joel Embiid is much better than Aaron Baines across the board as a basketball player so if if they can make that work and you know like the on-off splits are what they are we can make it work here what that doesn't take into account is like okay Think of the Baines, Horford front court, and then you have Ben Simmons, who teams exactly. are going to ignore on the perimeter, and so that is, that's like the wrench in, in everything. It's like it's hard to account for. You know, you can look at how guys look in different lineups and with different pairings, but there's no no guy that you could compare to around the league right now to Ben Simmons, and so it makes it really hard to build this team and to to bring a piece like Horford in without knowing what it's going to look like next to Ben Simmons. You can only really guess.
1: Yeah. Cause I mean, if you look at the rest of that Celtics lineup, it was like, it was very good players around those two, but they were like much more traditional good players. It was was, like Jalen and Tatum are very, very talented, but
0: they're kind of traditionally talented players. Like, and and they're guards too. Like they they had guys like they had Rozier, they have Marcus smart who, you know, he's not like a full time point guard in the way people would think of Point guards traditionally, but he was a point guard most of his life, and obviously has like ball skills to be able to play there. So that that they they don't have that they don't have that normal lineup that they can make a free agent signing and say, hey, we just slide you in right here (laughs) and do exactly what you did at your last team. I feel Um, like the
2: lack of postseason though, particularly muddies things for Philadelphia's future and just what direction they want to go. Like, what's your sense on how this sort of complicates everything?
0: Well, so he, I, I think there are a, a few layers to that. Number one, I think the person who is hurt the most by that is probably Brett Brown, because I think the only thing that was going to save him from losing his job was a deep playoff run. Like, I think at this point, if they cancel the season, that's probably their most their most natural move. It's like, okay, we, we get rid of the head coach, and that's probably our, our quick fix. We can sell that. First of all, from like a public relations standpoint to the fans, Brett's grown out of favor and, and maybe the players need a new voice. I think Ben Simmons gave an interview recently where his family intimated that he wants accountability and, and maybe that he's not necessarily getting that right now. So the, maybe they bring in a yeller and that's the fix. I think it's a little tougher on the uh, the roster side and the front office side because with the roster – you can say, okay, we never got to see this group in a playoff setting. And I think they are like a big, bruising, physical team that, you know, when it's in the playoffs and you can get away with more physical contact, and I think defense ends up being more important than the day-to-day grind of the regular season, then maybe that's when you see the ceiling of this team emerge. Like, you've seen them on – National TV against a lot of high level opponents like the Celtics, like the Lakers, the Bucs game on Christmas, you see this team can get to a level that like few teams in the league are able to get to. And when you're able to scout one team for seven games, maybe that's what emerges. But the flip side of that is like maybe that team doesn't really exist and it is more of a flash in the pan. And so then you get into a discussion of, okay, well, if this front office put this team together that's doomed to fail, should they be the group that's allowed to try to fix it? Because like the team, the people that greenlit the Horford signing, should they be the ones to trade Horford? Or should this be a situation that, you know, you clean house, you bring in new voices and, and they're allowed to, to figure all this out. I think it's, that's the big unknown here for me is, do they still believe in Elton Brand and the group that's been there? They were, the the rest of the front office has essentially been there since Brian Colangelo was hired. So there are a lot of guys that have survived all throughout this, including Bram was the the G League GM prior to Colangelo being fired. So I don't know if they're at the point where they would clean sweep yet, but I do think that's at least on the table after the season that they've had. And, you know, the money that this team is going to be paid next season, they're going to be deep into the tax with the, uh, the salary cap impacted the way it is. So they are, a lot of reasons for them fiscally basketball court wise to uh consider a blow up of everything
2: if you were the gm what would you do with ben and joel
0: to me i would try to ride that until the wheels fell off i think they're <laughs> they are the two most talented players the team this franchise has had in decades and i know that it's like a suboptimal fit and it's going to require a lot from both players to be able to get where they need to go. But I I think ultimately, if if Ben can somehow, you know, he doesn't need to bring up Ray Allen's name again. He doesn't need to be Ray (laughs) Allen to make an impact as a shooter. Like if he just turns into even a below average shooter, like Marcus Smart actually is a great example. He's a guy that for years was one of the worst volume shooters in the league, but his biggest asset was He was never afraid to take shots in a big moment, sometimes to him and the team's detriment. But if Ben had that sort of mentality and teams couldn't punk him out of games to a certain respect, then I think it's like the sky's the limit for this team. And so I think it's breaking through the mental barrier as much as it is starting to produce there. And I do think if they can just get enough guys who can dribble the ball and shoot, they will be OK. I, I think those two are talented enough and certainly defensively are two of the best 10, 15 players in the league that they can build a contender with this team. It might be a little harder than with you know, some traditional ish players in their places, but I think they have to treat this as, you know, until one of those guys asks out, we have to do our best to build around them. Well,
1: I think to Nicole's point about like the the playoffs being a, a big thing for this team to miss. Like I remember the first game of the season when the Celtics played them, and it just felt like the Celtics were lucky to get any kind of a look at the yeah. basket. Because that, that defense was just like stifling. Like they were just killing the Celtics. Like every time come, and part of it was actually if I recall, I think part of it was just Tybal, actually, like that Kemba would just come Very out screen and he was, just, oh yeah. my gosh, he was just causing all kinds of problems. But it does kind of feel like, to to your point, to Nicole's point, like the playoffs would have would have been big for that. And it might have been, I don't know if this is fair to say but it, but would have been big for Embiid and Simmons to get, like if they played well, to to remind each other, like, oh yeah, like we can be a partnership. Like, you know, it doesn't always have to be Ben versus Joel. It should be Ben and yeah. Joel versus other people.
0: And I think they've done and said a lot of the right things in terms of, know trying to put this all in perspective i think early on there was a bit of an uneasy truce where you know it's like the whose team is this sort of deal and they've i don't want to say they've totally pushed that to the side i think maybe that comes to the forefront at some point but they've talked with one another and they've worked together to say like hey the best chance we have to win is if we're both the best version of ourselves and so that's going to take sacrifice we're not going to turn this into – we're not going to weaponize this against one another. They try to do some stuff in public to, to bury that stuff. Like at All-Star Weekend, they like to act all buddy-buddy. Where You know, they're not best friends, but I think they have a better relationship now than they did a couple of years ago. And and that, I think, is ultimately almost as important as the on-court stuff is they have to be able to weather the the storm and all the noise that comes from, like, you know – ESPN every time there's a big loss for them on national TV is going to pound it, that situation and say, well, do they need to break up? Do they need to do this? Do they need to do that? And they need to be able to, to tune that out and understand that, you know, as long as they have each other, that that's, that's what's going to matter in the end. I think
1: Celtics can, uh, I think they can probably relate at least Celtics who were on last year's team can relate to that because every time (laughs) there was a big loss or a big loss on national TV, it was, is Kyrie going to leave? And it was like,
2: that was actually pretty accurate assessment. (laughs) Wasn't just like over sensationalizing. (laughs)
1: For sure, let's do this. Just kind of take us through their money situation a little bit, because it feels like—I mean, you mentioned that. Yeah, it's like Harris is on a huge deal. Orford's locked up for forever. Like, how how much more difficult does that make their building process
0: here? It's very difficult, and I think so. I don't. Obviously, we're all guessing right now as to what the salary cap might be Uh, because of this, and so that I guess is the ultimate question here. But this could take them from being like. They were going to be a tax team, I believe, next year, regardless. This could turn them from just being a tax team to being a team that's over the apron. And so then you you can't make sign-in trades. You have a smaller amount of money to use with your exceptions. Yep. And so that, that really limits you in terms of how you're able to upgrade the team. And that puts a lot of pressure on them. They don't have a lot of picks to begin with, but it puts additional pressure on them to nail... Any sort of draft picks that they make and really ramp up their development program, which, in fairness, they actually have, despite the fact that they've had some high profile failures over the last half decade. Someone like Shake Milton, they they got Landry Shamit in the back half of the first round. Furkan Korkmaz has now come on years after people thought he was like a a not even an NBA player. Matisse Theibel obviously has had a, a, a pretty good rookie year. So they've done well despite the fact that they're now not using premium draft picks. But it's a matter of like, okay, how do you incorporate that into the team? And on top of that can you get guys in that late round that are not only good enough to be in the league but fit well next to Ben and Joel and so then that circles back to the original problem and so that's, that's right. sort of the the alpha and the omega of this team i guess it feels like sometimes the <laughs>
1: Ironically, I guess the process is kind of flawed, but the results can be good. Like Ty, (laughs) because like they they telegraphed that they wanted Tybal so bad, like it was just so obvious that they wanted him, and so the Celtics were just like, "All right, well we'll take him, and then you can give us something for him." And it was like, "Yeah, like you didn't do that right." But the guy they targeted is this long arm, very good. Yeah, he's really good. Like he's he's gonna be a real asset for them. So it feels like it almost feels like there's smart decision makers behind the scenes, but they don't always necessarily go about it the right way.
0: Yeah, it's funny. That's like the opposite of the Fultz trade where everyone was on board with it at the right, time yeah. and then it <laughs> fell apart. On draft night everyone was like, "Well, they got totally sharked here. Like how could you let this happen?" And then lo and behold, the is really good and it's yeah. like a high-level contributor for them off the bench this year so it works out. So, yeah, like I don't think I think a lot of their player evaluation guys and and girls in the front office have been have shown that they know what they're doing, but you know they've they've taken some unnecessary gambles. I think the biggest thing that stands out for me is I think they probably pushed their chips in too soon. Sure. I, I think the Butler trade I think is defensible in that they didn't give up a whole lot. It was like Jared Bayless's contract plus Sharpe and Covington. And while Sharpe and Covington are, are good role players, they're not like needle movers. They're Maybe Covington is to a certain extent, but there are some flaws that he has that are exploitable in a playoff series, particularly with their team construction. I think past that, like going all in for Tobias Harris, who the Clippers obviously wanted to get off of to be big players in free agency. And then the big commitment to Al Horford, like when you push all these chips in and they're on guys that, you know, they're like dicey fits with your best players. And for no real reason, like, these guys are young. Ben Simmons, I think, is, like, 23, I want to say. And I think Joel Embiid is 26. So, like, they're not – they don't need to win right now. They have a couple more years, but they're running up against this scenario where, you know, Joel's already on his big contract. Ben will be on a max next summer. So, I think they felt the pressure of we're up against it in terms of when we can spend money. So – this is the best player we can get with that money. And, you know, it didn't end up working out very well.
1: Well, and I think to your point that one of the biggest problems they ran into was like, when they traded for Jimmy Butler, that made sense because Jimmy Butler was a top 10, top 15 player in the NBA. Whereas it's like Tobias Harris is a very nice player. You know, he might be like a borderline all-star in the exact. It's always the like, worst thing to
0: hear. It's like very, he's a very nice player. You know,
1: <laughs> like you don't even mean it like that. Cause it's like, he's a talented guy. Like he's a talented yeah. player, but like he's when, when yeah, I don't even know. I mean, he's, he's on some kind of max, right? Like he's on like a huge deal.
0: I believe he's, it's 180 million over five. I want to say.
1: Yeah, and like, you know, he shot, what, like 36% from three this year?
0: Right, if he was 42% from three and he's like a the shooter difference. they yeah. wanted him to be or thought he could be, and he showed himself to be in L.A., that's a different story, but he just hasn't been that guy in Philly, and so that that's the problem. And when you're pushing chips in for guys who are, you know, like the
1: 30th, 35th best player in the NBA and whatever Horford All is right. at this point, it makes sense when it's Butler because then you're getting like a superstar. It doesn't make as much sense for just these kind of – good but not great guys especially in somebody like Horford's case where he's 33 or whatever he is at this point in his career exactly let's say the se- the season did come back or let's say the season had come back how how would you kind of predict or or kind of uh, envision a Celtics Sixers playoff series
0: I mean honestly I think it could go either way 100%, 100%. I think you know Stevens is obviously a, a big adjustments guy that I think he's earned the benefit of the doubt that he would probably impact the series in that way. I think the sixers for once got the the upper hand in the uh the season series this year and I, the question really is, can the sixers dictate the the tempo and the style of that series because I think all their big wins have been played on their terms this year where it's mm. like, it's just a slow slug fest type game where you know they might win it, it'll look like a early 2000s pistons game where they're winning like 95 90 or like <laughs> 90 to 85 or some shit and those are the sort of games that they are structured to win like they're just going to bleed teams out over time they're not going to go out and hit a ton of threes and i'll have the personnel for that And I I guess it's just, like, do you believe that they could do that for seven games against a Boston team that, you know, they have a bunch of guys that they can get off in a game. Like maybe Kemba goes for 35 or maybe Tatum goes for 35 or whatever it is. Maybe Marcus Smart has his one random, (laughs) I'm going to make like six threes in a game type night. Uh, And so that – He now holds the franchise record for most threes in a game. Marcus Smart, (laughs) Uh, I I do think engaged Embiid against this version of the Celtics is you know he's in a great position to dominate that matchup because they don't have the Horford type guy. Uh, Now the the flip side of that is like he still does have his problems dealing with doubles, and I think Boston is a team that's good at. You know, not necessarily sending hard doubles, but sending help defense and, and hitting him on the backside and and not compromising their three-point defense, too. So that would be a, a big question of the series. And then, obviously, all this stuff with Ben, too. Like, can Ben be impactful enough against Boston to win a series? And, you know, I would like to think that he's learned his lessons and that he's willing to change his game a little bit to suit the matchup. But you never really know until it all unfolds, I guess.
1: I do think that one thing that would be interesting. You mentioned that the Celtics are good at bringing doubles, but I did think that it felt like Embiid started to react to the this this season specifically. It felt like Embiid he has started been to bring yeah. a lot better. Yeah. And then the other thing that I'd be curious to see is just how would the Sixers deal with Tatum because he is a different player now than he was yeah. at any point when the Sixers played him. Like I think I think the series might end up being Embiid versus Tatum, which would be just unbelievably fun.
0: Yeah, well, I I think Simmons would probably take that assignment full-time, would be my Mm, guess. And, you know, last year in the playoffs was really his big coming-out party defensively. Like, game one against Brooklyn, they lose. And then he, for the next four games, basically took D'Angelo Russell out of the series. And then he was also the – not that they stopped Kawhi. Kawhi was unbelievable in the seven-game series, but he was – he was really their only line of defense against Kawhi Leonard during that run. And this year, he even ramped it up some more. Like, he's switching across matchups and, you know, he's guarding point guards to power forwards. That He even played some small ball center when Joel Embiid was out with with various injuries this year. And, I, like, I think he was putting in, like, a first-team all-defense type season. There was maybe some, like, dark horse defensive player of the year buzz at one point. I think he would relish that matchup with Tatum. Now, obviously Tatum is skilled enough that like he's going to get his at some point regardless and Ben's not going to be able to totally take him out of the series. I think the more interesting thing would be like, okay, if Ben takes Tatum, how does that benefit Jalen Brown or how does that benefit even like Kemba Walker, who I think Ben would guard for for some possessions of the series. Like you do have to pick your poison there. And I think that's why – Boston is such an interesting team in the playoffs. Like, they're comfortable living in these one-on-one situations because they have a bunch of guys that can win them.
2: So if the season did end and they didn't play any more regular season games, the Celtics and Sixers would meet in the playoffs if they Mm -hmm. just started it traditionally with the Sixers being on the road. Why was the Sixers' road record just so brutal (laughs) this past season? And do you anticipate, like, that changing at all come postseason?
0: I wish I could give you a a good answer on this but that's been you know I've asked a lot of people my my suspicion is that it's as simple as they are just not good enough offensively and I think at home when you have they're relying on a lot of streaky shooters and young players and so at home someone like Matisse Stiebel or Furkan Korkmaz there's not a lot of they're not bothered by the fans around them and the environment and all that and that just hasn't traveled. Like I think Matisse-Thibel's shooting splits are just crazy between home and road. I could probably look it up right now and tell you for sure. But they like little things like that. And then on top of that, mental focus has been an issue all year when they're on the road. Like Joel Embiid, the biggest critique I have of him this year is there are a lot of nights where he just has not been ready to play. And when your best player doesn't come out and show the proper – attention for a road game well that that's that makes it a little hard to get wins especially because they're a very they're built as a very top heavy team so you know some of that I think would disappear in the playoffs because I would like to hope that Joel Embiid is (laughs) mentally ready for any sort of playoff game but you know you don't know it's a they're a very bipolar team so uh expect the unexpected is what I would say
1: to your point, I just I just looked up Matisse Teibel's splits, and they are hilarious. So he is field goal percentage on the at home is forty six, which is fine. On the road is thirty five, like not great, but whatever. Three point goes forty five at home to twenty five on the road. That's a twenty
0: percent drop.
1: Oh, this is my favorite though. Uh, at home, he is a ninety four percent free throw shooter. On the road, he is a
0: forty percent free throw. Shooter. <laughs> That's even worse than I thought. Like that's amazing I don't (laughs) but that and like look that's one of their most important role players he's been one of their best guys all year and when they're at home and he's cooking that's like that's the best version of them is he comes off the bench with that second unit and it's Horford is at center and Joel's on the bench it'll be Horford, Simmons, Theibel and like a couple like put any two other guys on the floor and they just murder teams they get out and run and That's the most fun they are for the fans all year. And then they go on the road and it's like a a, a Marx Brothers routine. It's terrible.
1: (laughs) Um, Are they kind of locked into this team? Like, is this going to be the team for a while? Are there ways? Because we we talked about the money. We talked about some of these guys that are on huge contracts. Like, are there ways for them to make big upheavals without trading Ben or Joel or or are they just going to have to try to like make this squad as it is kind of kind of work over the next few years
0: I think it depends on how low of a return they're willing to take for somebody (laughs) like Horford because I think Horford is the natural guy to move on the problem is number one you have to find someone whose money matches which is going to be tough number two a team that wants him so I, I think the question that's been batted around on Sixers Twitter and elsewhere it's like would they be willing to part with someone like Theibel if that's what it takes to get off of Horford's contract because if you look at their asset situation they don't have a lot of first round picks to just you know attach they don't they probably have some high value second round picks that they could use but I don't know that that's enough to you know Horford's got another three years and if teams really believe that this is he's approaching the end that that's a tough contract to move I think the popular name among Sixers fans prior to uh him having a real like all-star level year was Chris Paul because he's got a crazy contract but I think is a much better fit with them stylistically it would allow you to take Ben Simmons off of the ball some more and use him as more of like a, a pick and roll screener type guy yep. and and lean into him that way but I think Oklahoma City's got to be loving what Chris Paul yeah. is bringing them right now. Like they're they're able to be a playoff team because of him. So then you go further down the list, and you're looking at like, would they swap him for like an Otto Porter type player? Who you know, he's certainly in a vacuum, not as good as Al Horford is at basketball, but he's a guy that fits within Philadelphia's team construct better and you can make a workable financial deal there. So is that worth it? And do you believe in the vision that you started with here, which is we need him to help us with Giannis. We need cover for Joel Embiid, which obviously that's a big part of it is Al has been the backup center on top of starting next to Joel Embiid. So you have to make up for those minutes and so there's a million questions you have to figure out with any sort of deal. But I think if they do make a a trade to shake up the roster, that that's the obvious one. It's just – it's not so obvious what they would want back. For sure.
1: All right. Well, we will leave it there. Huge thanks to Kyle Newbeck for coming on. This was this was a lot of fun, man. I'm really hoping that uh, – I mean, for many reasons, I'm hoping we get the season back. But I'm also hoping that we get a chance to uh, – see Celtics Sixers in the playoffs because then we can uh, have an excuse to do this again
0: yeah so. maybe we'll be in uh, Disney World watching Sixers Celtics <laughs> you never know
1: I mean I really think that like if they do bring this back they're just gonna like boot the media like <laughs> they're not gonna oh yeah I think like, we'll we're not gonna watching be watching from home
0: <laughs> I think even like the broadcasters might be, think you know, so too. It might be like a remote sort of deal. So, but yeah, fingers crossed that we'll be in a uh, Magic Kingdom in a couple months. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Definitely. All right, man. Well, thank you again so much. You guys uh, should all follow Kyle at Kyle Newbag. Anything you want to plug uh, before we let yeah, you know? Just,
0: you know, listen to the New Slant podcast, read my articles at the Philly Voice, and otherwise, everybody stay safe and uh, wear your masks when you're out in public. That's my PSA. Absolutely. All right, guys. We will
1: talk to you on Thursday. Thanks a lot for listening. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings